and and I think that's what I try to get across to people is much as companies are bringing all of us in to have these great talks is that it's not the companies that are solely to blame or maybe at all to blame but it's how we manage ourselves welcome to social fabric in this program we'll bring you conversations with people discussing their passion and the interaction with their community we explore how different jobs careers or achievements can inspire us to make small changes to improve our lives within our own community you can find more episodes on socialfabric.ie or wherever you get your podcast the program is also broadcast weekly on dublin's near fm 90.3 this week my guest is Siobhan murray psychotherapist resilience and mindset coach she's also the author of the burnout solution published by gill books this is my conversation with her can I call you up a while on a Friday night? We could reminisce on old days and we could talk a while. Just sit and talk. Thanks again, Siobhan. Siobhan Murray. Um, we're going to start straight away with the, the latest thing you just did, because I'm really curious about, about the Camino, the Campo Statement as well. I'd love to know a couple of things about it. But first of all, I'd love to know why you did it. Okay. And uh, tell me a bit about it. So it was decided about last November. It was a group of women. Um, and interestingly, I'm for all that I do in my working life, I one of the things I realised as I got older is that I'm a screaming introvert. So if somebody had known me 20 years ago, they would have absolutely dispelled that and said, no, she's an extrovert, a complete extrovert. And it took me giving up drinking uh, to realize how much of an introvert I am. So I love, yesterday I spoke on the stage, I went in the company, um, I've done TV, radio, I love all of that. But when it comes to how my energy levels, how I manage myself, I realized I'm an introvert. So when I was confronted with this, we're going on the Camino and there's be nine women. On one level, it was my idea of, oh my dear God, um, so I didn't get involved. I said yes, because part of me had always wanted to to see what the Camino was like. Um, not necessarily from the religious, so I didn't go with those expectations of this is going to be very serene. Um, we were only we only ended up walking for three days. Um, and we did Friday, Saturday and Sunday and we did the last bit. So we ended up in Santiago and it was the most incredible experience. It was, the the walking itself is very busy. Um, so again, I think maybe I had a little bit of an expectation of that, that it would be more serene. Um, but you've got solo travelers, you've groups of travelers, um, but where you stop for your coffee, um, people are stopping for glasses of wine. It's in people's houses and people are sitting on their front, porches and it is it, it, it's funny it's warm it's real you are completely removed from the bubble and you know I think living in Dublin it is a massively amazing city but it is a bubble it's it was something that I I'm, I'm incredibly glad I did I also bizarrely did it with a broken toe which I didn't realize um, which, well, you broke until before you went? Yes, which I didn't realise. But what was the most incredible experience was arriving into Santiago. And I had done no research. 
um, into it. So it was completely, you you walk in and you've walked for three days and, and you're tired. And the last day, there's quite a lot of incline. Um, what was fascinating, I didn't get emotionally moved in any way. We saw beautiful churches along the way. We arrived into Santiago and it was like the hairs on my arm just stood on end. Um, even though, again, you know, it's to an element touristy. There's there's lots of people there. You, for me, I arrived and I could just feel the sense of calm. Um, it's somewhere I would go back again in a heartbeat because we arrived in at about four o'clock and we left the following day at 11. So we didn't get a huge amount of time and they're doing renovations at the moment inside in the cathedral. So there isn't the mass the way they would normally be um but there's churches beside it and you can get into part of the cathedral there's the opera house there's the square and when i came back it then made me sit and think god isn't that th there's all of this other life outside that's not going on holidays that's not going to these preconceived ideas and it's probably the first time i've gone somewhere without being the organiser, because I'm a single mum, so I'm very much the captain of the ship. Um, I just arrived with my passport with these eight other women, uh, went where I was told to go. And to have that wave of difference, to, to, to experience that was really beautiful. And the eight other women, your old friends? We're all from the same area. Our children, our eldest boys, my eldest boy, sorry, he went to school with all of the, the boys from these other mothers. But in the previous school, they're all now in first year and they're in different schools. So we wouldn't as mums see each other that much. And some of us would know each other quite well. Some of us would just know each other from standing at the side of a pitch. Um, so even in that, like every day, You'd walk with two or three people, you stop for coffee, then you might walk with somebody else. And you got to know these people in a very different setting. Um, every night we changed rooms, so you didn't have that mm. sort of, this is who I'm sleeping with for the next four nights. And, and you just got to take yourself out of your, you got to be you. Yeah, that's interesting because I know so many people have done it and everybody has a different story, but they all go back to that. It's quite unity of some sort yeah. where you just it brings you to something whatever that whatever you're looking for you're not looking for or yeah it brings yeah. you to somewhere that, yeah. uh, that's interesting on the monday morning i took myself off people were sort of doing a little bit of shopping or going to see a church or and i just went out we'd about an hour before the taxi came and i took myself off went and got my cafe con leche sat outside this tiny little bar but if you know somebody at 10 o'clock in the morning having their beer and someone else having their coffee and i love spain for me it's interestingly spain i think is my sole country it's just i i get there and i feel i've arrived um and sitting there and just watching all these the spanish because it was a really old little little bar cafe and that to me was was really beautiful yeah well, give me your first song that uh, you kept very close to your chest. So I have no idea what you're <laughs> going to throw at me. Um, my first one, uh, and these are in no particular order, is Inner City Life by Goldie. 
why did you pick that one? So for a couple of reasons. Um, it's a song that the words still, even now, stick in my head. And I worked for Goldie, must be 25, 26 years ago. Um, one of the most incredible people that I've ever met. A, probably the first person I met with the energy um, in him that just is infectious. Um, and when he wrote Inner City Life, um, I probably was too young to appreciate the, what it means to me now. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's what I live now. Um, you know, I may live in suburbia, but it's still, our suburbia has gone out further and further and further. Um, and it's, it, it creates to me what this is, this, this little hive. Um, it's like an anthill of inner city life, inner city living. Um, and that we're all just going. And when I think about it, I nearly see the lights of Tokyo, um, those fluorescent lights, not even of New York, but of, of everyone just going. Um, it is, for me, it's an incredible masterpiece of music. I think it's, 15 minutes long it's I mean it goes on and on and on um and I remember um one of the last events I worked he closed the enemy stage on at Glastonbury and he wasn't put on the bill nobody knew that he was going to perform so it was 11 o'clock on the Sunday night and the last act had finished and I was standing on the side of the stage and you can see all these people walking away because they think Glastonbury is finished. And this massive big projector came up on the screen and it was a 10 minute countdown clock. And people start, stopped and were sort of looking and going, well, why is the clock? And this started, this music started. And all of these people, it was like standing on the stage in the dark and seeing this sea of people coming back. It was... I can still feel it. Um, it was just incredible. Um, and his energy and his passion. And he is somebody who has reinvented himself so many times. Um, for the wild Manchester boy that he was, he now lives in Thailand. He's a yoga. Um, he's in a great, happy relationship. Still as mad as, as he was but in a calmer, more serene way. Um, and to me, it just shows that for somebody like Goldie, who was part of a very dark environment, um, he could have ended up, and he lost some friends through horrible circumstances, he could have ended up the same way. And he didn't, that wasn't to be for him. So he's, he, and, and that to me shows what people are.
actually I read a, a few things about uh, you, uh, there's plenty of articles online from different newspapers and RT and so on and so forth, but and uh, basically pretty much what you just mentioned about Goldie uh, is what we were talking about before we turn on the microphone about changing and, and mm. how we find our paths. Sometimes we find them, sometimes we don't, sometimes we change it, but it, it, interesting you mentioned you're, you're an introvert and you got into the music world, mm. which I'm assuming is quite a, quite a flamboyant. Mm. What were you doing in the music world and how did you get in? How, what, 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 how young were you when you got into it? Um, I started here in Dublin. I worked for MCD Concerts. And this was back in the day when, if you were in the right place at the right time and someone said, what are you doing tomorrow? Um, so what was supposedly probably a weekend job turned into a full-time job. And it was um, coming up to, it would have been 99, because it was coming up to fail in 90. And, which will stick in my head forever. Um, and I worked in the office and it was back when, the office was in Dennis, who owns MCD. He ran the office from his house. So it was a much smaller operation, but he still did the most incredible gigs. And so you'd work in the office and you'd do all the admin and all the normal paperwork type stuff. And then you'd be told, okay, so this band is coming in and now you have to take them out. So you could be taking out Def Leppard or you could be taking like, you know, these huge, huge bands. But you just did, you, you're 20, 21, and you just get on with it. Um, and I stayed here for a couple of years, and then I always wanted to work in production, because um, I'm a doer, I'm a visual learner. And I knew, I know that now, I probably didn't, I wouldn't have had that language back then. Um, and so being in an office wasn't for me, so I moved to London. And I temped in pretty much every record company in London. I've done worked in from classical departments to music video. Um, and I got a job working in Sony Music Video back in the day where we had long form music videos um, and doing the promo videos for, for bands. Um, from there moved on to um, one of the bands asked me would I go on the road with them so uh, went on the road with this four gorgeous uh, London black boys who were just the sweetest I mean they were you just want to take them home called emanate um, the letter M N and the the number eight and that I loved I loved that interaction of being outward sort of you still had the structure of you had to get up and, and do but no two days were the same um and but slowly for me one of the things that happened is in order to be able to manage being around people all the time um i became more dependent on alcohol and i never realized i never put that connection together i just thought i was doing what everybody else did but i was doing it for the wrong reasons for me um but it's what i felt allowed me to in the evening when you've been with people all day long then you have to do a gig or go out for dinner with people in the evening that's what you would do and when I look back now it's funny my weekends at home I wouldn't go out because mm -hmm. my life was so social during the week so at the weekends I was emotionally exhausted it wasn't physical exhaustion it was but I still drank mm -hmm. but I would drink at home 
and it, it, that became a problem. Like you realize it there and then, or you realize it? No, I didn't realize it until I'm eleven and a half years now, uh, not drinking, um, and I have been asked, um, "Am I an alcoholic?" I'm not gonna say was I because if you are, you are regardless sure. of whether you drink or not, and and I don't know. Um, is the simple answer to that because the day I decided to give up drinking it was the first of November I had gone out Halloween night I had drunk far too much the boys my boys who are now 12 and 13 would have been six months and, and 24 months and I went well, I can't do that I can't deal with them on the Saturday morning and continue drinking so I said I'm just going to give up for a month and I gave up for a month. I used to pour a glass of Diet 7-Up into a wine glass at six o'clock every evening because that would have been my habit, except but with wine. And I did that for a month and I haven't had a drink since. Very good. Mm. Give me your song number two then and ask you one more things about you. Um, um, seeing which order I will do it in, I'm actually going to say Sunday Morning by the Velvet Underground. Lovely. Why that? So that, that throws me back into being at the beginning of my 20s and those house parties that you go to and you think being 49, which I am now, is ancient and you know they're old people um and you'll never be old and the world is is in front of you um and i think that sunday morning feeling um the sound of the music in it it's it's so gentle um and it, even now when i play it and i would play it regularly it literally it's like it's like smelling something that throws you back into that memory of where you were in exactly what you were doing. Um, there was no mortgage. There was no uh, responsibilities, bills to pay because you didn't really think about it. You know, you just got on with it. Um, so for me, that's that's just that lovely. It, it, imagine being in a big field the sun shining, um, having a picnic and not having to worry how I was going to get home. I remember them. <laughs> that was probably at the same party. <laughs> Sunday morning brings the dawn in. It's just a restless feeling by my side. Just the wasted years so close behind. Watch out, the world's behind. I don't want to dwell on the alcohol because I obviously that's that's it was an important um, moment for you making that decision. But the, there's obviously a lot more to your getting to this to the to the industry to the music industry and getting out of it the music industry. What I'm interested in. It, if I were to look at your photo album, your family photo album now, Fissy Daniel, what would I see? Just give me a bit of a, an idea of your 
growing up, whether it was here in Dublin or where, just an idea of what's, what, what was Siobhan before I ended up being in the, in, the, in the music industry, by fluke, let's call it. By fluke, yeah, I suppose growing up was interesting. I'm half Indian, South African Indian, and growing up in Dublin um, back then, I would have been a rarity. There was very few mixed race. My father would have been, um, would have come over from South Africa to study. Um, I think I went to St. Louis in Rathmines and I was one of the only for quite a few years mixed race um, people in school. Um, my parents separated when I was five. I'm an only child. So we moved back to live with my grandmother and my two uh, youngest uncles who would have been in secondary school. Um, and my, shortly after that, my mum had a brain hemorrhage and she was, uh, she worked in advertising. She's an amazing lady, mad as a cabbage. Um, and she, she, so growing up was, I suppose it was interesting. I became very self-sufficient, um, cause mum would have been in a hospital for a lot of time and people she was paralyzed down her left side for a while and then when she came out and I can say that she 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 doesn't talk about it but I do um she very interestingly she had a full-on nervous breakdown when she came out and she had sort of built up some of her resilience back again because she couldn't cope with not being able to do um so growing up was very much you know go and read your book because the focus was all around mum, obviously. Um, so I think I learned um, how not to have a voice. Okay. Which, amazing, you know, hindsight and working on yourself gives you an insight into who you are. Um, so you learn how to become a problem solver because you're not running to an adult to go solve my problem or this is a problem or oh dear so even then as a young adult I may have gone to an adult and gone I have a problem but I would generally go there was a problem but this is what I did to fix it mm. um, or you learn not to get into conflict because you don't have a voice and I think interestingly being an only child you also one of the things, and I, I firmly believe this as an only child, you don't learn organically how to fight and make up as you do when you have siblings. So you nearly catastrophize a lot of interactions with people that mightn't be positive interactions. You think that's the end of the world. You don't realize, no, that's just in the here and now. So you have to, for me, I had to work very hard on being able to, as I say, duck, tie my shoelaces and let certain things just fly over my head. And at that time, uh, obviously difficult circumstances between your parents uh, uh, separating, your mum having uh, uh, the emergency. Did you find, was it somebody there that became your role model or somebody that you're looking back now and go, oh, that particular person, whoever mm. maybe mm. was there for me without it, me realising it? Or Oh, she was amazing. Uh, Sister Betty Foley. There you go. 
there you go. Sister Betty Foley is no longer Sister Betty Foley. She's Betty. She's great. She was our career guidance teacher uh, in secondary school. And she was the first when it came out that they didn't have to wear, nuns didn't have to wear habits. Remember the day she arrived into school and she had a pair of cowboy boots on and a skirt and a shirt. And we were all like, because the other nuns had just stopped wearing the habit, but they were still wearing their, the rest of their, their nun uniform. And Betty was just the best. And then by the time I left school, a few years later, I heard that she had left and she was no longer Sister Betty Foley. And then um, I believe that she met somebody else uh, who had left his uh, priesthood. Um, but she was incredible. She was she was the woman. And funny enough, like, it's about two or three years ago since I bumped into her. And she would still have that effect, that incredible positive effect on me. Give me your song number three, please. Um, is Overcome by Tricky. Okay. Um, and I think it's, it's probably, much as it was in and around the same time that I was working for Goldie, I think it was a good few, it was a few years later. And I think at that stage I was in quite a dark place. Um, and I think without realizing it I was pushing probably the first time I experienced burnout but I was pushing through and I was only being my late 20s so that's you know you look you look back now or if someone's saying you're very young to have experienced burnout but I really was burning the candle at both ends and at that stage at 24 I bought my first apartment in London so when no one else of my peers was even thinking about it I had such a need to have my own roots to have my own um home so i put huge pressure on myself so i think back to a lot of the music around then and tricky um and massive attack and and that's one of my other songs in and much as it was amazing music i would have been in quite a dark space come out and anyway but I did a bit of research and uh, one thing that struck me you mentioned in one of the articles that um, uh, the imposter syndrome you had this thing about imposter mm. syndrome that you got to a point where you realize you were saying well I shouldn't really be doing you know mm. what I'm doing and wearing it tell me a bit about that because uh, I'm, I'm always been the believer of the opposite that you fake until you make it and uh, and I don't have a problem with that if mm -hmm. it's done for the right reasons, yeah. which effectively what you were doing with the yeah. music industry and uh, 
And he went on to do some wonderful stuff with mm. the Ronald McDonald House mm. and so on and so forth. So tell me a bit why that, that idea of the imposter syndrome. Uh, the it was it was very funny doing doing being on the Late Late Show and announcing to the whole entire uh, nation that was watching my biggest secret, which was I never did my leaving cert. And you know, if somebody came to work with me and said they didn't do their leaving cert, I'd go, so what? Wouldn't even think about it. I go, whatever you've achieved, that's great. But for some reason, I took that on board as this massive um, failing. And therefore, anything I did, it all fed back into, well, I shouldn't really be doing this because I didn't do my leaving. And I shouldn't really be doing this because I didn't do my leaving. And that you really only deserved to have a good career if you had finished second level education, gone on to third level education. Um, so it was, it was a secret. So when I would be applying for jobs, I never said I didn't do my leaving. I'd kind of just gloss over that bit. Um, and, and I would end up in situations, I mean, I remember in temping when I back and I ended up working full time for this amazing man but he was uh Hubert de Rougemont amazing and he uh I'd go into his office and I'd sit there and I'd be taking shorthand and all these letters and I'd get back to my desk and I had no clue what I was supposed to I'd be making it up in my head trying to remember just the conversations because of course I'd said I could do shorthand um why wouldn't I and then I'd get myself into such a state, um, but I'd battle on and I'd go, because I wasn't going, because it goes back into that, don't ask for help. Don't be, you know, don't be a nuisance. Just kind of get on with it. it. Was anybody at that point, at some point, that kind of find you out for want of a better word to say, look, Sean, you can do shorthand or you're done? Not and, really. No? Okay. I, I kind of just muddled through. Yeah. I would always... Um, find a way of sort of glossing over it or then if I had a problem it would go back to that thing of there was a situation but I figured it all out and it's all okay now and it's fine just letting you know that something happened um, and, and get on with it. But you obviously use what you like you know you spent quite a few years in the music business between mm. here and London and then I suppose one of the main things in the music business, you, you get to meet a lot of really important people. And we call it important because, you know, it's the movers and shakers yeah. of festivals and uh, O2, whatever they call now, arenas, it used to be the point and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you apply that to what you did then with the run on McDonald House, which yeah. I just read, you, you, you was a charity manager for three and a half million pounds raised, which is mm -hmm. a lot of money. Mm -hmm. What, what was that, what was the best part of that process of the run? Because it's a fantastic uh, service that they provide down mm. from in the run. It's a palliative care, am I right? It's, it's, no, no, it's, it's, it's the, the Ronald McDonald House is a support system in place for the families of okay, children so who are in seeking mm. care. So rather than a parent having to sleep on a single bed in, in the room, what you will have is you can have double rooms, you can have um, triple rooms, you can have big family rooms. So if you have a family down in Cork who's having to come up to Crumlin um, and the mum is up Monday to Friday, but on a Friday, dad comes up with three other kids, 
there's still that family unit can be together. Um, it, it is, I mean, I've seen them worldwide. They're phenomenal. They're probably the most underrated service that is out there. But that must have been an amazing um, job to do, mm-hmm. like to actually raise funds for something. So was it, was, it, was it really rewarding? And why did you move on from there? So it's so to, to answer the second one first is once the house was built, um, they then got a charity manager to run the house. And that I never wanted to do because I had utilised all my contacts in doing all the fundraising. And again, I loved that. And I was based in the McDonald's head office. They provided the office space for, for me um, and covered all the overheads. And McDonald's then, as uh, the, the corporation, offered me a job working for head office, which my ego took over. And I this role had never been there before. And here I was being offered this great uh, communications role from the girl who hadn't done her leaving. And so my ego was like, oh my God, this is great. And I'm not a corporate person. Um, so yeah, the ego can be a very, it's there to keep us safe, but it can throw us into a tailspin when it lets us take things on board that we are not for us. Um, and I realized, I mean, on the one hand, I, I did love it. I got to travel and, um, I sat on the obesity task force. I think that was probably my biggest imposter syndrome. Sitting in uh, the likes of Ibeck in Dublin on the obesity task force um, with the likes of Kellogg's and Cadbury's and all these other big, big, big companies. And I'm sitting there going, what am I doing here? What am I actually doing? When would they realise? don't really know what's going on um and I can remember that very vividly um which is silly now when I look back because I did have an input and um but at the time yeah that was probably where I just went I'm in way over my head um I give me back into the music industry or or where I'm just doing because I'm I'm a physical doer yeah because then the before and we'll go into your current um, um, occupation as such, mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, but uh, before that, this is fascinating thing. You, I read you, you took on a franchise for something, uh, baby sign language. Was baby sign. I was actually only speaking to somebody about it yesterday because I sometimes forget about half the things I've done. I bought, uh, which was very funny, because in order to buy the franchise, you had to to apply would go through an application process and it was through the UK. And one of the things that you had to do was sing three nursery rhymes down the phone because the baby sign classes, because it was structured, were delivered through uh, visual auditory and kinesthetically. So you're signing, uh, you've got instruments and toys and then you're singing. And that's all great. So I did my three songs and the very nice franchise owner said that's lovely Siobhan have you ever thought maybe you could do some singing lessons because when I was in school I was told in the choir could I mouth the words um of which is another reason why Sunday morning is one of my favorite songs because people used to say Nico sang very flat so that would be me um 
So I went off and I paid to have singing lessons to learn how to sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And it took me a year. I must have done the application process three or four times singing down the phone. And the day that I, she eventually said, yes, you've been able to, bu to buy this. I was in Spain and I actually cried. I cried that somebody said I could buy a franchise because I could sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Um, and it was amazing. The, the actual classes were amazing. And I have, there are Facebook groups of the mums from 12 years ago who are still friends um, who came to classes. The problem here in Ireland, and I was the first one to bring it into Ireland, was in the UK their insurance was really low. Local communities were giving premises to local franchisees because it was such an amazing idea. Whereas here, I was my the cost of the room hire in community uh, halls was really expensive, and it just you it wasn't it wasn't working financially, but it was great. I loved it. Yeah, your song number four, please. So, I should have thrown this back in earlier. It's Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, and it was only when I went to see the movie quite recently. Um, which has had mixed reviews and the movie itself I thought was great but that very last bit where you're watching Live Aid and I can remember exactly where I was and that I needed to get home on the bus because there was no mobile phones and I was in someone's house and I didn't want to leave and we were all there was been a 25 of us in someone's living room and watching it on this small television and watching it again on a big screen and I spoiled myself my mum and the two boys and we went to watch it in the Stella cinema so I'm sitting in this beautiful chair um, with it on the big screen in front of me thinking God wasn't that just incredible that that was put on in such a short period of time wasn't the the energy of Queen of all of those people all coming together that filtered through every television and I think you could feel that energy coming through every television and 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 has impacted so many people um, so for me it's, and to hear, to see my kids who would never have seen or known Queen, uh, to see that as one of their favourite songs. Um, when you see songs cross generations, that's to me special. Coming to where you're at now, so you've, you've done quite a lot since you decided that, the, well, since the baby signing language mm. thing didn't work out for the reasons you gave me. 
and you ended up getting a few degrees in counseling, psychotherapy, mindfulness, and so on and so mm-hmm. forth, which is what you're doing now. Mm-hmm. You were saying when I first came in that you still do one-on-one with a lot of the work you do, it's uh, by Skype and, and uh, remotely. Yeah. What's uh, and you specialize? What what fascinates me? You specialize in uh, in behavioral change mm. and family mediate mediation. So mm. can, tell me a little bit about what you do and how you do it and, and why. So with behavioral change, I suppose it, for me, and it's and it's constantly evolving. Um, I think the biggest thing is I spent my twenties, all of my twenties, on antidepressants, um, not uh, drinking at the time as well. So that wouldn't have helped. And I think life was a chore. Um, was I depressed? I actually don't know. Was I continually burnt out? Maybe. I don't really think that's, that's relevant. But I don't think I fully grasped that I was responsible for me. I was responsible. I knew I was responsible to feed myself and get myself to work and to do all of those things. But I don't think I fully grasped. I was responsible for my own mental health and for my own actions. Um, I think there was a level of me that, and I think it's very evident in the way that my life and my career has panned out, of I just stumbled into things and things just happened. So a lot of the time, you know, there's this whole, oh, I can't do that well right now maybe you can't do that but it's also a choice that you're choosing not to work at being able to do it whatever that may be um and when I've changed the way I view the way my mind works the changes that I have created in me the behavioral changes I've created in me have been phenomenal and, and I do say this with a smile on my face in that I still test it. I still go, mm, let me just see if this works or let me see if it doesn't work. Simple things like if I'm having a bad day and I'm going, I just want to go back to bed. I actually just want to go back to bed with my book and I've no clients and I know I have a load of work work to do. But if I shake myself, if I physically shake myself or I go and stand in the back garden and talk for two or three minutes or focus on gratitude or focus on what I have achieved not what I haven't how I can change instantly my state how I can change and not faking it till I make it not pretending to be happy but how I can actually go yeah no this is okay yeah, and I get all that. What I'm curious about, um, so if we go back to your Velvet Underground song mm. and that picture you gave me of mm. freedom and parties, and, and I was there mm. when you were describing, I was some party <laughs> there. But, and, but at that stage, we were 20 something, 25, mm. and, and the world was, we were just, we, we were invincible. We just yeah. knew everything. Well, I knew everything, I think. Oh, I knew everything. <laughs> But how, but that's that's important now to get the behavioral change. It's important to get that twenty year old, twenty five year old mm. guy or girl to make that behavioral change now, as opposed yeah. to wait until they they're in the late forties. Yeah. How do you do that? Do you have clients 
in that in that age group? I so the the clients that I have one gorgeous client. She actually works in the music industry. And uh, she came when she came to to work with me. She said, "I'm having a quarter life crisis," and I worked with her. I can't change what somebody's experiencing in their life, but I can work with them. I describe it as going to the movies and you're sitting in the movie theater and the movie's up in front of you, but there's somebody sitting in front of you. So you don't have a perfect view of the screen. So it's annoying you and it's irritating you and you're just, you're not really happy. Just not a good place to be. But you sit there and you get more and more and more annoyed with yourself and the situation. What I do is I get people to get up off that seat and go and sit at the seat at the other side of the cinema that's free, that there's nobody sitting in front of. So they're still watching the exact same movie, but they're seeing it from a different angle. And that's what I work at facilitating with people, that they can walk away and go, okay, I can't control all of that out there, but I can control how I manage myself with all of that out there. Yeah, no, and I get it. And I went through that process as a middle-aged man on a different path, but, mm -hmm. you know, I now know when it's time to, to take a breather, to take mm. a walk or a run, whatever it is. I'm just, uh, and I just love to see, I would love to see a younger generation taking a quicker, you know, taking a better look where they're at. You mentioned the antidepressant for so long. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just an easy path into mm -hmm. trying to feel better. And uh, and it didn't. It didn't. No. I, I would describe me now as 49, the big 5-0 this year. I am in years 49. Um, the wisdom of 49 with the attitude and enthusiasm and love of life of the girl listening to Sunday morning. Okay, well, that's great. Mm. That's great. Yeah. No, it just, it, it, the more people I talk to and, and this whole mental health issue, and it's great we're talking about it, and I'm, I'm hoping to do my little bit with this uh, little project to get it out there. Look, it's good to talk, talk to people. Too. Mm. But I've been, I suppose, I, I suppose my question is, we still have to experience that freedom, that teenage, early 20s, to do what, what you did, what I did. Mm. I suppose that's part of growing up, isn't it? Uh, we'll have to, um, and hopefully, try to keep the right path. It is, and you know, as. I mean, what do you say to your kids now? Because <sighs> that's the other side of it, right? Oh, you know, that's... One thing is one on one with, uh, with me, your yeah. client, and. And then you have your, your boys to, yeah. to tell them what to do or what not to do. And what not to do. And I think it doesn't help that I was incredibly naughty. Um, um, so I might have better insight into what's out there. Uh, so that doesn't help. So I might be more sensitive. Um, I also think, I and I do, and I know I get... I get come up against it a lot where people go, yeah, but we had our different stuff when we were younger. I do think this generation has a very different battle with social media than we ever did. Um, I think, you know, kids, boys being boys, there'll be fights, there'll be scuffles, there'll be things happen as they 
oh, but that's testosterone, it's happened all along. Now everything gets videoed, gets put online. The same with girls. Um, so I do think um, they have they have different battles and, and I'm not so sure we can even say, oh, we did too, ours were, were similar, just different. I think theirs are, are much more intense. Okay, let's move on to song number five before I ask you about your book. Um, Tiny Dancer by Elton John. Why that? Well, sometimes I forget, well, most of the time I forget how incredible my experiences in life have been. And I had the privilege to work for Elton John for three years. And I kind of see it as saying, yeah, I just went to the bathroom. You know, it's like just normal where it's not. This man is, again, like Goldie, but in, in a different way. So incredibly talented, not manufactured, has dealt with his own demons. Um, which is interesting because I didn't pick these um, Goldie and Elton because primarily because I've worked for both of them. But isn't it interesting that both of them have come out the other end of their demons, um, having done this um, um, huge amount of work on themselves. And I think Elton's music is infectious. Um, so to have been, I mean, I could have picked actually all seven songs and just had all of his music. Um, his, I think Tiny Dancer is just, just beautiful. Blue jean, baby. January. Yeah, just a few months ago. Uh, I asked um, a guy I know in Italy, he wrote his first book and it came out uh, last year and I said, how long did it take you to write? And he said, 56 years, you know, it's basically. Mm -hmm. it's, it's Very it's good life. answer. Yeah, and uh, so I'm curious, how long did it take you to write it? Uh, because obviously what you just said to me about gold and what you said about Elton John, and they came out at the other end and they burned out. Mm. At some point they must have burned out multiple, yeah. multiple times. So I'm assuming, and I haven't read the book, but I'm assuming the um, all of those experiences, as well as your own experience, are in there somewhere. It's, um, it's that, is that how you come about? It's, well, it's more, I didn't go into as much detail. There's a little bit of detail about sort of my previous careers. Um, it was, it's more about how, how it helps people recognize signs and symptoms. So it's probably more practical, um, not as reflective. Um, and there are some case studies of clients I've worked with from very different industries and how they've dealt with, with burnout. Um, it was, 
it, it, it was very interesting writing it because the imposter syndrome reared its head of because I interestingly I was asked to write the book as opposed to the other way around and this is probably this is what I call my tree hugger moment I had done a vision board and I had said for about a year previously um I really and it had been in my head but I hadn't said it out loud I really wanted to write a book and I actually thought the book I would write would be much more reflective and um but I really wanted to write a book and I also wanted to be known as an expert in my field and I wanted to work on a tv documentary very specific what I wanted to do and in November 2017 in the space of 20 minutes I received two phone calls from two random numbers and one was from Guild Publications to ask would I like to write a book on burnout and I thought somebody was having a laugh and the other call was from uh, a, a production company to ask would I take part in working on a TV documentary on stress and so that's where I said earlier about I test the whole ability to change the way we think because if we think I really want to do that but that's never going to happen um, into a different way of thinking um, I think we create the space for things to happen I'm not saying you can do that and win the lottery but I think we create uh, where we're supposed to be going in in our path but I suppose to answer how long it took me it took me probably that year uh, I think I procrastinated I think I learned an awful lot uh, about it I definitely doubted myself in the writing of it because that imposter syndrome kept going who's going to buy my book who's, and, and even I've in a few interviews I've done with incredible uh, journalists for newspapers and I've you know I look up to them I've read their articles and I read their 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 articles regularly and I go you know well I'm not a writer like I wrote the book but I'm not a writer and, and they keep going no but you are you've written a yeah, book you're a published author yeah, yeah. you are you're yeah. a writer and uh, the book is doing well yes which is great and why do you think it's doing well I mean okay aside from the writing of it but they obviously who's buying it and do you get do you get uh, feedback directly from readers through social media or mm -hmm. whatever the email address do you, i do i get i i would get emails i would get private messages on um all my social media accounts are work accounts i don't have any private social media accounts i think managing work ones is, is enough thank you to the powers that be that have put these fabulous modes of communication out there um I've had everything from most recently, and she's great. She's a 70-year-old lady. She has her own blog. Uh, it's she, she's, she's on Twitter. She's on Instagram. Um, and she is experienced burnout. She is managing her daughter who had a brain hemorrhage, interesting enough, at, at, uh, as an adult, and then she's also the grandmother of the children that she's minding while her daughter's going through all this treatment. So she's she regularly um, contacts me and tells me what she's thinking as she's reading the book. Um, I have, I've had men um, message me. But interestingly, 
I think, and I did a talk, a corporate talk yesterday, and I think we have got really good at pushing, let's talk about depression, let's talk about mental health. So it's become kind of okay to talk about mental health. We're still nowhere near where, where we want to be, but it's become that little bit more acceptable. Burnout, I think, is very different because there is a perception that with burnout, you're not coping with what you have either created or you're not coping with just the norm. The norm being just your work, your family, because burnout's not supposed to come from a trauma or anything like that. So no one wants to go, I'm not coping. So it's not as openly talked about um, nearly as depression. And I think we need to change that because anybody can experience burnout. And I think that's why it's done as well as it has, is that there is, there's people out there buying it, but it's, again, it's not the type of book that someone goes, I went into bookshop and bought you this great book because, you know, you're really burnt out. But there is, there is this underlying people sort of probably buying it more online um, than going in and openly buying it. And another thing you mentioned that it interests me because a few of my guests uh, doomed what you what you did yesterday, corporate talks. Mm. Obviously, then um, companies out there are starting to take these quite seriously, mm. and they get the likes of yourself in and Fiona, yeah. whoever maybe yeah. Brian Penny was another guy. Yeah, that he's did great. A lot, of, a lot of talking, so they're obviously taking it seriously yeah. to get people in and talk about what their mm. field of it and. Uh, so that's happening across. You're getting quite a lot of corporate uh, yeah, talks. Yeah, I do. Um, last month I spoke, I went to Galway. I spoke to, um, for a pharmaceutical company, I spoke to oncology nurses. And my talks are, because it's quite, it can be, you could make it into a very, very serious mm. talk. Um, and I, I bring a lot of my own experience of life and being a single mum and the day-to-day challenges that has and, um you know my past and drinking and uh, things that people can can relate to um that you're seeing companies and it's not you know and I'm very very clear years ago burnout used to just be um very much associated with stress from work so it was the company's fault or the industry or the career and it's not anymore. You can be burnt out at home equally. And and I think that's what I try to get across to people is much as companies are bringing all of us in to have these great talks is that it's not the companies that are solely to blame or maybe at all to blame, but it's how we manage ourselves. Um, and I don't know if you have read why my company is called Twisting the Jar. Oh, that was going to be the next question. <laughs> so... When mum had her brain hemorrhage, um, it left her weaker on her on her left side. So anyway, she's she's absolutely you know by and large fine now. But when I was in my late teens and I was bold, I remember standing in the kitchen. We were in a rented uh, flat in Rathmines, her and I, and she was making spaghetti bolognese, and she was trying to open the jar um of sauce and she didn't she's she was trying to twist it and she didn't have the power to twist it and she said will you open this for me and i can't even remember my attitude i was like oh god 
she not open the jar? And I couldn't do it. And she said to me, close your eyes and visualize yourself twisting the jar open. And I did. And I concentrated really hard and I visualized it and it popped open. And when I was thinking of a name for the company, I, for some reason, was thrown back into thinking of this. I thought, well, there's loads of ways to twist the jar open. You can stab it on the top with uh, a knife and that releases the pressure. You can run it under water. You can bang it on the side of a counter. All these ways that you can do it on your own. Or you can do what mum did, which is she asked for help. And she didn't ask me to help to do the whole entire dinner. She only asked me to help her with one component. And that one component was the jar. So once she had the jar open, she went back to doing what she was doing. She didn't see, I can't open the jar, therefore I can't cook dinner, therefore I can't do anything, therefore I am a failure. And I think in life, we do that. When we find one bit that we can't do, it ripples very quickly out into that negative, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, and we don't ask for help. So if we ask for help, in that one area that's not going so well for us, get that support. It allows us to put all the other bits together. Great, great name. Give me your song number six and then I'll let you go back to your work after the next one. <laughs> so uh, my song number six is Crazy World by Aslan. Any reasons why? So I always loved Aslan. Uh, I would have got to know them back in my early 20s um, when I worked for MCD here. And I would have... God, it's funny as I'm saying this, I keep thinking, all of these people I'm picking have actually come through their own incredible journeys. I didn't do this on purpose. Um, but I remember back Aslan got Aslan disbanded and it was uh, Dignam and Goff and Christy had gone through all his own his own journey and recovery and and falling up the wagon and recovery and they're a band that I think rightly or wrongly should have been so much bigger uh, and maybe that wasn't their their path um, maybe then I wouldn't get to see them as often as I do if they were big stadium uh, gigs and not the Vicar Streets, which I love. But I remember when the boys, when my eldest was born and they, as I always play on Stevens's Day and uh, Sean was born uh, in September. I remember that, uh, that Christmas going to see them and when Crazy World came on and thinking that that was my job, it was to protect this little bundle in the crazy world.
thing I'm quite curious about it, your burnout solution book is 12, 12 steps or 12 points? Or it's, it's done over 12 weeks. 12. So rather Why 12? It's funny. Uh, there was an amazing review. I don't know if you've read this. Mm. And if not, I will send this to you. Uh, a, somebody wrote a review only last week about it um, in uh, Ireland Books magazine. And she started off going, uh, there's 12 months in the year. There's 12 signs of the Zodiac. There was 12 apostles. And she lists it all in the 12. Uh, and I hadn't actually thought of that. But I think there's something, 12 is a really nice number um, to do it over 12 weeks. They say it takes 66 days to make or break a habit. Um, and I think 12 allows each, it's done as a, a week, um, so each chapter is a week, that it gives time people to reflect and to move on rather than overwhelming people. And I work with people in a one-to-one -one over 12 weeks. So there is a beginning, middle and end. And I think that's what I wanted with the book was for people not to say, okay, week one, do this, week two, do this. And by week five, they're like, oh, this, um, yeah, put that back on the shelf. That it's a slow buildup of creating new behaviors and getting your solid foundations done and then putting on all the really nice stuff, like getting your mindfulness and finding a way mindfulness will work for you and incorporating it into your life and gratitude and, and understanding the 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 science because there is a science behind all of this and I think people I, I always say and I'm sure Brian would, would probably say this if there was if if the effects of gratitude and mindfulness you could get in a pill there'd be cues outside every GP's office yeah we have the ability to create those effects without having to put a pill inside us and that's what I'm curious about. It. And one of your, I think it's your first point, is be selfish. Mm. Now, tell me a little bit about that, because at the same time, I'm sure at some point in the book, there's also uh, the opposite of that, uh, as in give, or is there? Because to be selfish, it kind of, again, I will read the book, but mm. I thought, yeah, I guess to be selfish a bit, but at the same time, I thought there was so much more when you, when you actually give. Then. But in order to give, yeah. you have to have something to give. Okay. So if you are constantly giving and you have nothing left in your being, you've no energy left, you've no purpose left, you have no core beliefs because you're constantly giving, then that's not sustainable. So in order to give, uh, my favorite piece of every talk I do is I practice, I do my thing because I always wanted to be an air hostess. So when I was younger, <laughs> I used to say for Aer Lingus back in the day, you needed to be five foot eight blonde and have really good Irish, of which I was none of. Uh, but my party piece was to do the two to the front, two to the side and two to the back. And it's funny, it's really like the, the name twisting the jar. It's funny how things turn around because my last slide in every every talk that I do is in the event of an emergency, put your own oxygen mask on first before attending to others. 
so some would say, but that's really selfish. Like, look after everybody else. But that's not selfish. And that's what I mean by being selfish. It's about realising that you have to say no to certain things so you can say yes to the good things. So, yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It yeah. makes a lot of sense. Mm. It was just, um, it was one of the things I read and I thought, uh, okay, that's... Uh, and do you think, um, did, that, did writing a book give you want for more to do more oh, yeah. have you more to come out yeah and, yeah and it's it's funny so what we were talking about before we started recording when you were saying about different paths and and stuff so i my belief is that we actually are all born with our own personal map of the world but through probably the pressure of our parents uh, a bit of society we are shoved down all these other paths that people think are where we should go to and we just keep getting shoved back onto our right path so because of that we do end up experiencing all these other things um, and reinventing ourselves and hopefully reinventing ourselves because I think it will be a very boring existence if we were if we lived in that fear of i can't change my career or i can't go off and do all these great things that are inside me um and i feel that i have finally pretty much been shoved back onto the path i'm supposed to be on and kind of I'm holding my hands up going okay i'm listening now i'm 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 where i'm i'm meant to be um but as i said i've I feel like I've got the energy of the 20 year old with the wisdom of 49 year old, which is constantly uh, filling up that bank because I don't think I'll ever be wise um, to write more books, to speak more, to have a voice, the voice that I didn't have when I was younger. Great. Well, you give me a lot of wisdom in the last uh, hour, but um, I always let everybody finish with a couple of words of wisdom. Anything that gets you up in the morning, if one quote, could be Dr. Seuss, could be anybody. What gets you up in the morning? <clears throat> Two things get me up in the morning. Mel Robbins, I'm, uh, I, I, I love her way and her passion um, and her five, four, three, two, one, get up um is is something that I do and I do it I apply it to everything but my biggest thing that gets me up in the morning is the minute I I'm awake even though I haven't opened my eyes is I give gratitude for the fact that I am in a warm bed and how blessed I am and my intention every single day never changes um is my intention today is the best that I can be for me. Because if I can be the best for me, then I will be the best for anybody who comes across my path. And that's my words. Fabulous. And we're going to leave it with the last song, which is? Oh, this is my favourite. This is Cheese Upon Cheese. It is Spice Up Your Life by the Spice Girls. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why that? Because we take life so seriously and we get stuck in 
so much destruction and you know you turn on the news and you see such chaos all around us and sometimes you just need to stick on a bit of Spice Girls <laughs> dance around the kitchen um, and just think you know it's okay well Siobhan Murray thanks Amelia for your time really appreciate it thank you so much it's been really lovely If you have got this far in the podcast, I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share and leave a review on iTunes. It's much appreciated.